You can tell me intellectually what it was like out on the front lines, but you really don't know what it's like until you go out there yourself. So it's an education. It's a new learning all of the time. And then um, the staff also wants to know that you are with them and they are with you. We're on the same team. We're going to win this together. And uh, to me, it was very, very important to do what we did here. Hello, this is Rob Hoyle, and thank you for tuning in to Northwell Health's 20-Minute Health Talk, where some of the brightest minds in healthcare help us break down the latest news and developments. I'm alongside my co-host, Chris Gazuski and our special guest, Michael Dowling. Mr. Dowling is one of healthcare's most influential voices as he's taken a stand against critical issues most CEOs shy away from, like immigration and gun violence. As president and CEO of Northwell Health, he leads one of the largest healthcare systems in the United States. And his leadership came front and center during the COVID-19 crisis here in New York. Michael, thank you for joining the podcast. Today, we'd like to discuss your latest book, Leading Through a Pandemic, which details the lessons learned from enduring COVID's first epicenter. Fantastic book available on Amazon. Can you explain what prompted you to write it? Well, we wanted to document our experience uh, because nobody... Uh, that is currently in healthcare has ever gone through an experience like this before. So when you go through something unique, you want to be able to put it down in paper. I didn't start out writing a book. I started out uh, documenting our weekly experience. And then as the material began to evolve, it became obvious that putting it together in some kind of a publication might be helpful. So I outlined it. And then we started to write, and um, I'm glad I did because it helped inform us and it helped tell our story, uh, and I think it's a good guidepost and a guideline for others uh, that might want to figure out how you deal with a situation that's of crisis proportions like the pandemic. Yeah, you can almost look at this book and, and look at it as a, as a manual. And um, I think it's important for a lot of people to, to look at this and, like we said, the lessons learned and how prepared we were as a health system. And we prepared so much, but we still saw that there was more preparation that we could have done and others. Well, you never get anything completely right. You're always continually trying to improve. Uh, no matter what you have that you think is perfect, it's never perfect. So because the, the day that you start trying to improve or the day that you think you have everything perfectly set, that's the day you begin to fail. And our preparation for the pandemic went back, you know, you know, 10, 15 years and more. And so we had a lot of things in place that others didn't. I mean, we started preparing for crisis situations back prior, prior to 9-11, in fact. And we've used our, our emergency management infrastructure multiple times since then. So every time you use it, like with Hurricane Irene, Hurricane Sandy, SARS, H1N1, every time you use it, you perfect it, you get better, you improve it, you figure out what the new learnings are and what you need to do uh, better going forward. And it's similarly this time. Um, as we went through this experience over the past six months, we now know that there are things that we've got to raise the bar on as we go forward because there will be other situations like this. There will be other crises. There probably will be another pandemic or something close to it, at least we've got to assume that there will, and then we have to be prepared. If you're a healthcare organization, especially located in New York, um, which is an epicenter in many ways of the world, um, with, with so many millions of people traveling in and out of New York all the time, with three airports right next to where we're located, you're going to have circumstances where you will need to be prepared for emergencies. 
and and that's the role that uh, Notwell has taken on. Uh, uh, we we want to be in front of the change, and we don't want to be victim of change. We want to be prepared. We don't want to be doing always doing Monday morning quarterbacking. You've got to be prepared to the best you possibly can, and then as you go through something, you learn and you prepare more. For as prepared as we were, talk about the experience of when it actually hit, because it, it had to be pretty devastating, you know, out of the gate. Well, at the beginning, it wasn't bad. At the, you know, in March, it started very slowly, and from around March 5th to around uh, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. And you can wonder why I remember that date, <laughs> March 17th. But we had gone from a couple of cases to about 75 cases at that period of time. So you're sitting there thinking, this is a very slow progression. And you have this thought process that says, well, maybe it won't get too bad. And there were people at that time saying, you know, don't worry about this. We even had national people saying at the time, don't worry about it, it's going to disappear. Um, but the way we think is that we, no matter how, what we think, we have to be prepared for the inevitable situation that might get worse. It got worse at the end of March. We got a couple of hundred cases. And then the first week in April was the worst week, where we went from three or 400 cases to 3,500 cases in patients. Now I'm just talking about inpatients here. We had lots of people coming into our urgent care centers, our ambulatory facilities, et cetera. Um, and because most people who got COVID didn't necessarily need hospitalization, but the hospitalization piece is the piece you worry the most about. These are very, very sick people. So we went uh, to having 3,500 people around April 6th, I believe it was. That meant, in practical terms, that pretty much every one of our hospitals was mostly occupied by COVID. Some of our hospitals were almost 100% COVID, especially the hospitals in Queens and in the border between Queens and Nassau County. So at that point, the acceleration of the volume of patients it became a challenge, um, not only in terms of uh, supplies, PPE, but also in terms of staff. So it was round the clock. Uh, but, you know, when you, when you have good people, you have a good organization, you have a foundational good structure, you don't, we never got totally stressed out. Because if you stress out in a crisis, it doesn't help. Um, you've got to sit back and be calm and deal with it. Um, as I've said many, many times, it's not what happens to you that matters. It's how you react to what happens to you that matters. So you've got to stay calm. And you know that at the end of the day, you're going to win against this. No matter how long it's going to take, you are going to win. And you've got to send that message on a continuing basis to everybody. How do you do that? How do you keep everybody together in a crisis like that? Um, uh, bring people together, promote unity of purpose. We are essential to the health of the community. Um, this is why, you know, as this went on, I mean, we, we were, everybody was out there saying, you know, thank you, essential workers. We've known that healthcare has been essential and is essential to the community health forever. We've, that's why we're in the business. But you, 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 you avoid stress by staying calm, by... Um, being optimistic by inspiring people to do their best work by unifying as I said around the purpose we're all together on this we're not dividing you take accountability and um, you communicate 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 consistently and you send a message that no matter what it is uh, we might get stressed uh, we might be under pressure 
But at the end of the day, you're going to win. As I said, I think I said on 60 Minutes, there is no retreat here. There is no putting up the white flag. At the end of the day, we'll win against this. That, I think, is what employees want to hear. That's what I think the public wants to hear. You don't want leadership standing up there saying, it's like going into a sports game, and I, I played sports. It's like going in, leaving the locker room, going out on the field and saying to yourself and saying to your teammates, you know, today we're going to lose. <laughs> yeah. I, I think mean, who the heck wants to be a part of that team? You go oh. out and you say, today we're going to win. No matter how hard it's going to be, we're going to win. And that's a, um, an important message uh, that you have to be communicating all the time. Yeah, and I think when you talk about leadership and, and how important good leadership is for you and so many other leaders to get out onto the floors, onto the front lines, and to be there and to, to support the staff and to ask questions and, and, and raise morale and, and basically let them know that you had their backs the whole time. How important was that to be so invested in our employees? Well, you have to keep in mind uh, when you're in the you know, so-called C-suite, um, that the people who do the work are the people out on the front lines every day. It's the doc, it's the nurse, it's the respiratory therapist, it's the cleaning person, it's the security. Uh, it's all of those people. Those are the people that are right on the front lines in close contact with, dealing with the people who are in crisis. You have to fully appreciate that and recognize it. And you have to associate with those people and you have to be out there i i am one i cannot stand in my office sit in my office feeling comfortable and not be out on the front lines with the people who are doing the work now they know what they're doing but they need to know that leadership is with them so as you know has been told numerous times i walk the floors of every icu in every hospital i met with the staff um they, I, I needed to see it because you can tell me intellectually what it was like out on the front lines, but you really don't know what it's like until you go out there yourself. So it's an education. It's a new learning all of the time. And then um, the staff also wants to know that you are with them and they are with you. We're on the same team. We're going to win this together. And uh, to me, it was very, very important to do what we did here. And I think that distinguishes us quite a bit from a lot of other places. What was it like when you were walking the ICU? Well, it was one experience. Uh, I think it was at LIJ when it hit me the most, and I've said this many times before. I walk on a floor, um, ICU. It was eerily quiet. You know, when you walk on the floor of a hospital, typically hospitals are bustling with people. There are people running around, walking around, moving um, moving equipment, etc. It's a little bit noisy. Um, here, it was completely quiet. There were no visitors, remember. Mm -hmm. All of the patients on that floor were either on, in the ICU, there was ICU, obviously most of them, many of them were on vents. There was no noise. None of the patients were speaking. Most of the doors of the rooms were closed. The staff, all wearing masks, there was muffled sound of the voices of the staff, very quiet. It was completely different than what uh, an experience you would have in any other time in a hospital. You kind of walk along and you're thinking, boy, everyone on this floor is severely ill. Mm. Many people on this floor won't survive. 
And I just want to point out here that while there was a lot of talk about the people who passed away, it's also important to recognize that we saved tens of thousands of people. And that's the other side of the story. There's been a lot of emphasis on how many people died, but we also got to keep in mind that many, many more people were saved by the staff on the front lines. So that experience walking through the floor and the quiet, eerily quiet, it was like, as I think I was described as like a living morgue at the time. It was, it was different. And you walk out of it, and you know, I still reflect on that. I still remember that. I also remember walking on the floors, and like I did up in Westchester hospitals and out at Mather and Peconic, and talking to the staff and coming across a number of employees who had just lost family members. Some of them had lost family members in the same hospital, in a couple of cases on the same floor. And they were still working. Mm. And they still stayed working. They finished their shifts. And then you ask yourself, who's the real heroes here? So when people, when you walk in front of the hospital and you see signs up, the heroes work here, I just was with them. These are heroes, despite their own individual circumstance and the terrible circumstances of their own situation, they were committed to making sure they stayed with their team working. So there were numerous examples of this, but you don't get this and you don't understand this unless you're out there personally yourself. You can't intellectually understand it if you're not there. You just can't read about it. You don't get the sense. You don't get the feel. You don't get the touch. And you don't learn. Yeah, I think when you talk about morale too, and you have to celebrate those wins. And there was so many times where we celebrated as a health system, there was celebrations for when a patient who was leaving after being, you know, a tough battle or the 1,000th patient or the 10,000th patient, those wins and those victories were uplifting for staff to celebrate that. Yes, and I was there during many of those occasions. And it just reminded me of one occasion. I think it was at... Um, plain view, I'm almost certain, uh, when a, a, an employee, no, no, not an employee, an, a, a patient came in, she was pregnant, COVID, in the ICU. She delivered, but of course the baby was taken. She was terribly ill. She never saw her baby. She survived. And I remember being there when she was brought out in the wheelchair. And as she was brought out, they handed her the baby. And she goes home. Just absolutely miraculous. It's amazing. Uh, when you observe those situations, you know, you see a lot of things in healthcare, and healthcare employees are used to, to, to uh, change, you know, we, and trauma, and they've got to be very versatile and adaptable mostly, uh, you know, pretty much every day. Because every day you come into healthcare, every day you went to, to an ED, every day you go on the surgical floor, you're going to see something different that you didn't think about or that you didn't see the day before. Here it happened in mass all the time. And um, the adaptability and the resilience of these people and the courage was pretty extraordinary. But those particular situations when you see the person being walked out, and I think one of the hospitals I was there when the thousand patients survived, the, survive, the thousand survivor uh, was taken out of the hospital. And... And everybody clapping, everybody, everybody celebrating. It, it built unity. And I, you know, going back to the unity idea I mentioned at the beginning, it built this idea of we're all together here. And the other thing that 
you know, the COVID crisis demonstrated was our, our, you know, the fragility, our fragility as an organization, our fragility as humans. All of a sudden, you're very strong one day, and all of a sudden you have a virus that you can't touch, feel, or see, hits you, and it almost becomes devastating. And now you have to be adaptive enough and resilient enough to deal with it. But you realize, you know, we're all very fortunate to work where we work. We're all very fortunate to be in healthcare. We should all be extraordinarily proud for what we do in healthcare. And the community and the public demonstrated that gratitude every night when they were celebrating in front of every facility. Those are the kinds of things that you should never forget. And, um, and I do think because we've gone through this, ex- this experience, I think we're better prepared to deal with the, no- norm- the normality going forward and better prepared to deal with further crises as they come in the future. And, and that's going to happen. Yeah, I think there was a line in the book where it was like, I think it was in World War II, like we're not going to go to the enemy and buy bullets. So, oh, and, and we had all these people competing, other countries, everybody competing for the same stuff. So when you look at the book and some of the ideas that came out of it, we were thinking about actually making our own PPE. Yeah, we, we look at all options like this just like years ago when we created our own group purchasing organization and we built our own warehouse and we built our own lab, which was obviously key during this. Everybody at the time said, but why would you be doing this? Why would you be building a 160,000 square foot lab? Why would you be building a warehouse? Well, that's all part of the overall attitude of preparedness, that you want to be in a situation where you control to the extent that you possibly can your own destiny, that you're not totally victim to somebody else or somebody else doing something. So yes, if there is a way for us uh, to manufacture in partnership with others our own PPE, yes, we will look at those options, and we are looking at them right now. And nothing has been finalized, but obviously if an opportunity shows up or comes our way, uh, we jump at it so that we are, again, a step ahead of everybody else in our preparedness. Yeah, you mentioned innovation, and I know we 3D printed nasal swabs when we were running low, and then sure. the, the BiPAP machines, too, we, we transformed into ventilators. Yes, because, um, uh, and then we share that experience, by the way, with everybody else. You know, the, as I said, the more vents you have, the better, and BiPAP machines can be converted to a, you know, to a vent, and uh, that can be used, and they were used. I saw them being used in many of the hospitals as I walked around. So it increased the supply of vents by converting other uh, breeding machines like BiPAP machines. So, um, but as we now look at inventory going forward, we've got to make sure, and we are making sure, that we have as, uh, as adequate supplies as we possibly can for what might be coming down the pike in the future. Um, it, it changes the way you think about this. So no matter how well we were prepared better than most, but we still ran close to the edge on a number of occasions. The biggest problem, however, in terms of dealing with this is making sure you have the right staff and the right complements of staff. And uh, Because remember, you're working 24-7 all the time. And so uh, you've got to make sure that you, know, you have the right staff in the right place, supported by other staff that we bring from other places. And that's the reason we shut down a lot of our other activities so that we can redeploy the staff from ambulatory sites into the hospital, for example. I think we redeployed over 3,000 staff uh, during the height of the crisis. These are all of the things you do. And, uh, I mean, the book gives, um, you, know, uh, you know, outlines um, and I think can be instructive to others, not just in terms of a pandemic, but in terms of any crisis that you might come up with, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's, a, you know, some other major virus that may not turn into a pandemic. The lessons in here, I think, can be instructive. 
So that's a wrap on part one of this special interview with Northwell Health President and CEO Michael Dowling. The conversation continues in part two, which is currently available. This is Chris Kazuski for 20-Minute Health Talk. As my co-host Rob Hoyle likes to say, stay safe. Get more insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20-Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts.